If you're anything like me, then many of your proudest moments as a South African are closely associated with sport. Whether it's underdog victories or feats of individual brilliance that inspire us and give us hope, it's really tough to ignore how sport is inextricably woven into the fabric of the tapestry that tells the story of our new South Africa. One such moment recently, actually, was seeing our athletes, their broad smiles hidden behind masks, but not from their eyes, right? entering the stadium under our flag during the opening ceremony of the rather ill-fated Tokyo Olympics. Like, I don't know if it was my surprise that the event had gone ahead in the first place at all, in the midst of all of the disruptions around it, or the fact that it, this moment came at a time when my national energy was at an all-time low. But the sight of our beautifully and rather eclect eclectically <laughs> dressed athletes just reinvigorated me with all of those feelings that yeah, I'm pretty certain are unique to the experience of being a South African and being South African in this time. One of the most noticeable aspects of those outfits were the brightly sold Feltskun shoes that each of the athletes wore. Now, these weren't just Feltskunner with a small V, they were Feltskun with a big V, the brand, the now internationally famous footwear and lifestyle brand born out of South Africa, made for the world and inspired by the traditional footwear, the Felis, uh, of the same name that many of us are familiar with. You know, the, the comfortable rawhide shoes, uh, and I found this out today, by the way, uh, are rumored to date back to 17th century Dutch settlers who were in turn influenced by traditional Khoisan footwear, which makes a hell of a lot of sense, uh, of that same period. And they're, they're the DNA of like an incredible story of entrepreneurship. Um, now funded by notable international venture capitalists, the likes of Mark Cuban, Feltskun and their flip-flop offshoot Plucky are a product, a brand, but most relevant to this conversation, a story we can all be really proud of. Talk about doing something original with something traditional. And this is the fifth episode of our Original by Tradition series, brought to you by the Glen Livet. It's a conversation with Nick Dreyer, one of the co-founders of Feltskun. I've got to be careful how I say this. I don't want to diminish uh, in any way the 50 other incredible guests I've welcomed onto the show over the last year and a bit. But my discussion with Nick was easily uh, one of my favorites so far, and I have no doubt you'll feel the same. Please don't hesitate to share it far and wide. It's, it's the kind of story we all need to hear right now and please keep an eye also on my social media because we'll be publishing a really cool highlights package of the first five conversations of the series uh, both in terms of video and text and then coupling it with an incredible giveaway from the team at Glenlivet which you really really don't want to miss out so yeah without any further ado Nick Dreyer from Feltskin. Nick, first of all, thanks for making time, mate. Really good to speak to you from across the Burvos curtain. Um, but I want to, I want to start with this image that I had. You know, watching the opening ceremony of the Tokyo Olympics, what feels like a lifetime ago, it was actually just a couple of weeks ago, and seeing uh, our, our athletes come out in these really cool, really vibey outfits with Felskun on their feet. And I want to know from your perspective what it must have been like to see that moment come to life after what I'm sure has been quite a lot of organization and logistics over the last one. Tell me about what that felt like. You know, it feels a little bit like um, there's always this, humans have this incredible ability to forget pain. 
And uh, when yes. you're in the short moment, short memories. Yeah, we've got very short memories, but it was it was glorious. It was a, you know, Feltskin has been a five year journey, and the idea came about because we wanted to make the South Africans feel proud about mm. walking out at the Olympic Games, and that's really the genesis of the idea. So when they walked out, to be blunt, it was emotional. Our team was was all together, which was cool. Uh, we even zoomed in a lot of our global distributors now. And um, to see it happening, it, it, it was a surreal uh, moment for all of us. It was fun as hell. And um, we, we had to giggle a little bit because the likelihood of that having happened is so remote. Mm, uh, mm. That in order to have achieved, so many levels. Yeah. yeah so to achieve it was, um, was a very, very special, I think, once in a lifetime type uh, achievement. It was, it was radical. I loved it. Talk to me about some of the responses. What have you What have you heard from distributors, from customers, from around the world uh, in response to that visual? It was uh, hugely positive. There was a real identification that Sascock and the Olympic Committee had done well <laughs> by engaging local designers yeah, and local yeah. companies to produce uh, a uniform for the athletes when they got out there, and also the athletes were they loved it as well. Um, yes. Of course fashion and and any sort of apparel choice is going to be subjective so sure. it, you know it's not 100 uh, percent universally loved for example there were folks that felt that uh, that it could have been different and there were folks that felt that they didn't like it which is completely understandable sure. um but the the overwhelming majority of south africans responded positively to it and um Yo, we're now known. You know, we, we we used to be this little footwear business that was quirky and feltskin and all the rest of it. But uh, the last few weeks have made it so that I think most South Africans know that we exist, which was mm. which was the upside of this entire exercise, really, other than supporting the the athletes. But um, our international distributors loved it, of course. As you know, like it's trying to sell anything, content is key, relevance is yeah. key, and authenticity is key. So. Um, the ability to deliver that type of messaging into the world, whether it be to new distributors or new uh, suppliers or new um, customers, is a very unique thing to be able to have in the in the asset bank. So we're we're pleased we did it. Yeah, I suppose if if you're making everybody happy, you're probably not doing anything important enough. Hey, um, so, so some, <laughs> well, some constructive you, criticism. Yeah. You never you never learn anything from people that you only agree with. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. 100%. This is how we grow. But still, having said that, I think my sense, certainly from the view of a customer and as a South African and a fan of of, of what we're trying to achieve, it it seemed universally uh, well-received. And, and so I applaud you guys for that. Like I said, I can only imagine the amount of work that went into it. Now, you mm. speak about being a unique and quirky brand. And I mean, what's interesting about Falskun for me is that I discovered the brand you know, most often what the story of South African brands that export their legitimacy overseas is that you enjoy some local success and then you identify a prospective market and then off you go. And, and more often than not, we struggle to find a footprint or a foothold in, in that area. You guys kind of had the opposite experience almost where your first foothold was with an international audience and then it almost reversed back into, into your local market. Am I reading that right? That was my experience. But tell me a bit of that story. It's 100% correct. You know, we so when we started Feltskin, none of us had experience in apparel or digital um, selling, mm. whether that be just true e-com or support through digital amplification, social media, ad, AdSense, all the rest of it. So we went about it very differently. We first built a brand audience around Feltskin as an idea. 
and mm. a product, but mostly an idea. And this idea was that we were we were very positive about South Africa and we were celebrating South Africans, and that there was this really cool shoe that represented that, and that somehow if you bought it, you would feel connected not just to South Africa but to South African values. And we built it in South Africa, but when we built the the engine, we realized that we built e-com, of course, but then with amplification tools around it, whether that be Insta and Facebook or the rest of it. But we got through it so quickly, and we realized how important the content was that we we could duplicate immediately. So we hmm. duplicated in London and then – or in the UK, which serviced the entire UK, and then we duplicated again in the US. And what happened was, of course – Two things happened. One, we took the investment from the high, the, you know, sort of high-profile guys in the US, being yeah, Ashton yeah. and Mark Cuban. And then the the other thing, in fact, happened preceded that was that uh, Harry or Prince Harry wore the shoes. So we had this really big international exposure, which then made us totally relevant in South Africa, because. In South Africa, we were Feltskin, but remember, Feltskin's been around for 300 years or 400 years. It's arguably the oldest shoe in the world. So in South Africa, it was like, oh, okay, they're, they're, they're back. You know, In fact, our first tagline was, the legend is back. So <laughs> people didn't think of us as a new company. And yes, I don't think people yes. still think of us as a new company. They kind of just think of us as something that's always been with South Africa. And I, and I mean, that I, I find that really interesting. But yes, you're 100% right. We sort of built it off the back of global legitimacy. Yeah. And then yeah. It in South Africa, and then we used that to then find even more relevance. But we, we, the one thing that we're incredibly strong on is our value set, which is that this is a South African company and this is a South African product. And, this is, and our job is to highlight and amplify South Africa in a positive light. Now, now, there might be people listening to this, Nick, who are going, how the hell did they do that? Because, I mean, you, you tell that story, and, and still, as I'm listening to it, the mechanics of it are kind of overwhelming. I mean, are, I imagine that one of you might be married to Ashton Kutcher's cousin. Or <laughs> Tell me about how that happens. How does, is this just the efficacy of a great product that people saw, connected with, loved, wanted to wear? Or was, yeah. was there something else happening behind the scenes that, that made this possible? Okay, so let's just discount all the things that it might be before mm. we talk about what it might may well be. Yes. It's, it's def there's definitely no grand design. There's definitely yeah. no marketing genius, or there's de and there's definitely no strategic uh, advantage that we've had. So mm. let's take that out. You know, let's remove all of those. So it's, it's very hard to define in terms of a plan that was executed. It's simply not the way it happened. Yeah. How it happened was we built a really good product and it had an authentic story to tell and it was mm. a story that people liked, mm. but the product is a ripper. It, it's a really comfortable shoe. We make it by hand. It's, it's yeah. beautifully made and it has, and it, and it really does. People enjoy wearing it. It has the, we, we got the timing right. I think the, 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 the world moved into a sort of semi-casual apparel space about five years ago. Mm -hmm. So you've got a lot of CEOs walking around in T-shirts and jeans and Feltskin now, and you've got mm. waiters wearing Feltskin. So there's like this weird, it just kind of leveled the playing field. So like everybody started wearing it, which is great. But how does it happen with Ashton Kutcher? We have the, and, and also with Harry and all the rest of it, the three of us, Ross, Zonach, myself, and Nick Latouf, uh, the founders, we have always put it down to enthusiasm and naivety. <laughs> it's a we wonderful have, combination. We've yeah. never, ever known how to do any of the stuff that we've done. We've learned on the job. We've mm. worked bloody hard, and we've upskilled ourselves tremendously in a very short space of time. 
but we have no barrier to what we think yes. we can do because we have yes. absolute naivety. Yeah. I have yeah. no idea how to do a, a fashion retail business other than Falcon shoes. Mm. You know, th th that's just the, the truth of it. So when we went out there, we just thought we could build a US business. So we did. And then when we did that, a South African guy called Steve Watts, who we'd never met, found the product online, said, this is beautiful. It's an authentic thing. I, would you be interested in us helping you in America with it? And we're so naive and so open and so enthusiastic. We immediately said, yes. In fact, I phoned him. But his wife answered in, in, in San Clemente, California, which meant it was like three in the morning. Turns hmm. out he was in Durban. Ross and I got on the plane the very next day to go meet him in Durban. Hmm. Had yeah. lunch with him, good family, lovely people, popped over to the US, started talking to them. They wanted to do it. And it turns out, unbeknownst to us, that their shareholders are Mark and Ashton. And there's nothing other than absolute serendipity and enthusiasm and naivety that made that thing happen. But you've got to put yourself out there. For, for you had one. to make a call and you, you had, had to, to hop on a plane. Right? And when we knew it, when, when we had the opportunity, then we, we put the hammer down. And, sure, um, sure. So it, I think it was about identifying opportunity, but then also having the fortitude to act on it as quickly as you can. And, of course, we understood the value. So we, um, mm. it, we knew that it would be a really interesting thing. So we did it. But we've always been like that. You know, we've, we had this uh, – I'll tell you another really – strange one that happened we really wanted our shoe to be in Woolworths mm. um, and the reason we wanted it to be there is we felt Woolworths had not done a great job with South African brands and sure. you know, they'd, they'd got into trouble on the in the news and all the rest of it and we felt that they could tell a cool story about supporting a South African brand oh yeah so we asked two friends and they said cool let's introduce you to somebody at Woolworths and we got in, into a breakfast environment explained it to them in a, in, a, in a way that we weren't trying to develop a relationship in, in business. We said, listen, guys, we really feel like you could tell a better story about South African brands. Why don't you jump on board with Feltskin, put us in the stores for a while, let's see how it goes. And they said, you know something, that's actually a really great idea, we'll do it. Mm -hmm. So that's not by design, it's just by enthusiasm and wanting to try and do some cool stuff. And then on the back of that really hard work and a cool team that's dialed in. But at the very front end of finding opportunity, it's basically enthusiasm and, and a little bit of creativity. Nick, early on in my entrepreneurial journey, I remember uh, obsessing over what I would do, what my backup plan was if things went wrong, if I failed. There's such a like such an overwhelming narrative around uh, the failure of small businesses and the lack of support for small businesses and so on. And what I never really stopped to think about was, what would I do if it worked? Um, <laughs> how, what would I do if it succeeded? And weirdly enough, that has almost as many problems and challenges attached to it. Because, you know, I have a saying when I play golf, it's, there's nothing harder than recovering from a good tee shot. Um, they, you know, sometimes... Sometimes you hit the perfect shot and then you and then you have to figure out how to follow up and, and hit the green from there. You yeah. so 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 it sounds like you guys enjoyed some early success. Yeah. Talk to me about some of the unexpected or you know kind of unanticipated challenges that might have come since then and how together you guys have kind of innovated and continued to apply that great uh, combination of naivety and enthusiasm to solving those challenges. Yeah, so that is a, a really great question because Success looks very different at specific levels of growth, especially mm. in the apparel mm. business, right? So mm. let's say 
you get proficient at online and you're telling good stories and you're, and you're doing X turnover online. Then all of a sudden, the second distribution channel presents itself, which is retail. Yeah. And I can tell you, building an online website is one thing, but selling shoes into a group like Woolworths is a completely different animal. Mm. And you have to get the skill sets inside your team to do that correctly from a supply yeah. chain management perspective. So the way we did this is we realized we had a skill set shortage amongst the three of us, especially when we got into the bigger channels. Mm. So A, we acknowledged it to our partners. And from the very beginning, everybody that we've dealt with, we have asked them to understand that we are a small business and that we would like to grow with them, but that we would prefer to start small on everything that we do. Mm. So mm. when we got our first retailers, we went into four or five stores at a time. And then build it out into one of our great partners outdoor warehouse it's you know it's over 20 stores now and we're very good at it and you have to be very good at it to succeed in retail you can't get your ordering wrong you've got to get your size curves right all the rest of it but we we attracted some true talent in feldskin we're very lucky it actually just so happens to be ross's wife tricky she's our chief operating officer and she's she really is a a, a world-class supply chain manager and uh, and operations manager and she deals with all of that but what happens is as you grow you hit these skill set deficiencies that have to be dealt with but how we approached it was by always acknowledging that we were small not pretending to be something that we're not and being completely open and transparent about our willingness to learn and to excel in specific areas but we asked for patience and uh, and everybody that we've dealt with has found that that's been a refreshing way for us to approach it um, and we have found great success doing that and then we build we feel like we build meaningful relationships we, we stay with our with our network of, of distributors and that's I think what's what's made us an attractive offering it, it sounds to me I mean I talk a lot to modern leaders about the importance of a level of criticism or at least uh, critical thinking about the validity of the things that got us to the point that we're at now and whether or not those are continuing or going to continue to help us moving forward into the future. And it sounds like you guys have, despite what has been a great start to this journey, a, a fair amount of, hold on, let's just wait and think about whether or not this is going to make sense for us in the future. Are we assuming anything? Mm. Nick, that's not something that happens naturally. Generally, you learn that skill through experience or sometimes trauma. Mm. Um, how is it that you guys, what, what are your backgrounds and what, what do those backgrounds bring to this business in, in combination? How have you brought that experience to the space? You know, if I reference your previous question about fear, and getting to a point where you're succeeding and, and that presenting its challenges along with what the future holds, which is what this question addresses, and how do we deal with that internally, trying to make the right decisions? The first thing is we we are very similar. Ross, myself, and Nick, uh, in terms of our upbringing, we all schooled at the same school, Pretoria Boys High. We, um, we're all the same age. We've all got young families. So I think from a life uh, placement perspective, we're all quite similar. We also have very challenging business pasts. So we've, mm. we've got some mm. failures under our belts, which I think we're all three of us are quite proud of. But the way we've tackled it is we have right in the beginning insisted that we are going to build a happy business, which sounds so esoterical and so forgive me. But a happy business, we believe, is a business where you have the ability to directly make your point in a strong debate 
and that consensus will be reached in a kind and respectful manner. We insist on our value set in every single thing that we do. So we argue very, very often and hard about mm. tough decisions. Mm. I'll give you a great example. You know, we haven't opened up our own retail store in South Africa, which is the most, you know, it, it, everybody, if you think about it, it's like the model is more stores, right? Mm, you know, if you sure, think about our competitors, sure. they're up 15, 20 stores, whatever. We've decided not to open one. So mm -hmm. that internal decision-making is tough. And you have to make sure that everybody has their say amongst the founders and also our senior management team, Jiki especially. And sure. then we, we go hard at it, we debate it, but we have to make, we do the work. In other words, we study the decision, we take a look at the model that's presented to us. And then if we don't find consensus, then we don't proceed. Unless we all do it, unless we're all bought in, it doesn't happen. And the mindset that we have is always to do it in a kind and respectful manner. That There's no excuse for it. That we, 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 nobody is allowed to be disrespectful and nobody's allowed to be unkind. And then the last thing that we do is we, we approach it mentally in a manner that it's never been done before. So we've, we're never seeking to make decisions based on the success of others that have taken our mm. path. Mm, we believe okay. that Feltzkun has its own path that, that hasn't been ground before. It's effectively a digital marketing business that so happens to sell shoes. It's not a fashion retailer. So there's all these things that make us so different that when we look at things, we go, guys, we're not going to do what the Joneses have done or, or what the other successful companies have done. We're going to try and make absolutely sure that the decisions we make are favorable, unique, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that is Falskin Shoes. And it's with that mindset that we take our decision-making for the future. All right, a quick break and play. I hope you're enjoying the show, and I hope you're enjoying our Glenlivet Original Bike Tradition series. A wise man once said, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. For me, this is what being the original is really all about. It's a mindset. It's forward-looking. It's progressive. It's about not backing down to conformity or accepting mediocrity. It's about questioning norms, breaking assumptions. It's in the way that we combine resources creatively and use our talents in ways other people hadn't imagined. Ultimately, originality is really about people who are determined to do things on their own terms, redefining the way that we think about things like culture and success and achievement in the process. Originality is all about how we draw on our roots and show up winning again and again and again. A big thank you again from me to the team at Glenlivet for making these conversations possible. If you're enjoying the show as much as I'm enjoying recording it, please don't hesitate to share it with your network. And now, back to the podcast. Yeah, there's such a fine line between, and this kind of links to your point earlier on about, you know, naivety and, and sometimes how it's a strength, but there's such a fine line between reading the data and doing your research and understanding the market and the successes and failures of uh, existing and, and uh, competitors in the past, um, and also believing that the combination of factors that makes you, you, uh, will result in an original solution, a creative yeah. solution that is 
you couldn't replicate with another combination of people, products, or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, so that's quite a tenuous balance, right? A, a bit of a tightrope between those two things. But yeah. it sounds like if it's underpinned by values, I mean, yeah. that's a great way to build a skeleton. Talk to us about how those kind of values emerged and what sort of role they play in, in the business that you are today. The value and the culture are probably, the, uh, not probably, they are the most important asset that we have in our business. And they come from the way we grew up and they come from um, our friendship and the fact that we were comfortable challenging each other. Mm -hmm. um, and I came from, a, 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 the, for lack of a better thing, not really corporate world, but I was exposed to a really great mentor in Paul Harris and, um, mm. you know, of, of First Rand and, and the importance of values was imprinted on me and mm the impact that it can have on a business, which is often intangible, right? Mm. Um, for some reason, it presents itself in the strangest ways that you often don't calculate for ever. Sure. The values. I'll give you a good example of this. I think yesterday or the day before, somebody on Twitter had said, guys, out of the following companies, which is the most comfortable? And Falskin was mentioned in a group of eight different companies. And I'm not sure who it was. I think it might have been Ross. He re responded to the guy that put the tweet out, Hey, man, thanks so much for including us in this incredible list. It really doesn't matter. Buy, one, buy a pair of shoes from any of these companies and you'll be happy and thank you for supporting local. Hmm. And that comes out of our value set, which is we're, not comp we're, we're trying to make the pizza bigger. We're not trying to take a bigger slice. Mm. Like we're trying, mm. to, we're trying mm. to grow South African local business. We're trying to be a bigger part of that. But ultimately, we're trying to support the industry and trying to just be kind, if that makes sense. Mm. And the response to that was, oh, my God, Falskin's not even trying to sell their own shoes. How amazing. What a cool, what a cool energy. Thank you so mm. much. How refreshing. Mm. And it's like these small little signals that present themselves in your value set that then push it forward. But we do that every single day. And we don't even – it's like it's not, a, it's not a targeted, calculated thing because we put it into the business early. And um, we uphold it. You know, we thankfully our team does as well. We've been through tough times through COVID and our team believes it. And uh, we don't have to, you know, I don't have to coach the staff anymore. Like it's just, it's in our DNA now. And I think hmm. there's a, you, many books written about the fact that it's, in, it's almost impossible to change bad culture, but hmm. it's absolutely hmm. possible to create good culture. Yeah. And yeah. if you don't create it in the beginning, you're going to find it hard. And uh, if it's bad, it's hard to change. So we've always been very strong on creating great culture right from the beginning of the business. And, you know, and just acknowledging what are the facts. We're small, we're, we're a startup, we're trying our best. And, and, you know, we're just like everybody else out there just trying to do something cool. Yeah, it's such a great point about the, the, the culture design or the sort of architecture of what makes an effective culture. I used to believe in the early days in Cerebra that, culture was kind of like an agreement. It was 50% sort of emergent, a product of the people that were in the business and 50% kind of dictated by me. And then I realized once I got exposed to quite toxic leadership for the first time, I realized it's actually really 90% leadership. <laughs> um, and But what happens is that you, you don't necessarily then own that. That's not your child. You lease yeah. that, you codify it, you you externalize it and then it becomes something that people adopt and test and modify and so on and so forth. So, yeah. it, you know, that's, that's quite a difficult balance to get right. And it sounds like, you know, a lot of that is based on the inherent trust that already exists 
in the partnership. And of course, that can also be a double-edged sword. Working yeah. with friends is, is not always an easy thing yeah. to do. But Nick, I'm glad you mentioned social media. And I mean, obviously, this is this is my background. So it's a space that I, I enjoy talking about, but often don't really end up talking about on this show. Yeah. Um, but I'm really interested to understand, you, you're in a space that relies very heavily on personal advocacy and what we've come to call influencers as a means to familiarize your audience with your product and also hopefully convince them to buy it and and support the brand. But but for a lot of brands, sort of in my experience, that's become about sort of buying people's attention rather than earning it and creating relationships and promoting advocacy. I get the sense that you guys really consider influence to be a critical part of your business, but not in the sense that it's something that you buy like a billboard. Yeah. How do you think about influence and the role that it plays in building the brand and obviously at the end of the day, selling product? Yeah, it's critical. And we are the brand in South Africa that I think has probably benefited as much, if not more than everybody mm. on the effect, positive effect of influence, positive influence. Mm. I mean, we've had every large-scale influencer get involved somehow at some level with Felskin, whether it's high-profile high chefs or rugby players or artists or musicians. or We've had, we've had loads. And, I mean, the list is, is incredible. I mean, just a couple of days ago, Adriana Lima put something on her social media about Felskin, and that's 13.3 million followers. Um, how have we approached it is that we have – we have a very strong belief that you lose your you lose your authenticity when you have to pay somebody to like you. So we have approached it in a organic way, and we try to we try to do it in a in a in a way that adds value. So, for example, mm. if there's a new company that's in South Africa and they raise money, for example, and they create jobs in South Africa, we would send the CEO, a pair of Feldskin, and we'd mm. say congratulations on a wonderful achievement in South Africa. And we're just like sending you the shoe to say you're a champion. That's our, like literally, and we do it from the bottom of our hearts. I mean, it's like we, we really are proud of them. Chuffed, um, yeah. What invariably happens is that I get a phone call or Nick or Ross gets the phone call and they go, I've never heard anything like this. Why have you done this? What do you need me to do? And we go, no, nothing. Like I just literally just want you to have a pair of shoes. And um, what happens then is that CEO X, Y, and Z will then go, I think Feltskin is the most amazing brand and I'm so proud that they did this and whatever. And it's, and it's a totally natural and organic and happy way for us to engage with high profile people and they buy into that authenticity because we, and I mean, I, I'm telling you the game plan here. It's not even a game plan, but it's, a, it's the truth. And what happens is if we have the ability to give somebody a pair of shoes and make their day, then we're going to do that. And hmm. we're going to do it because we want people to feel cool about South Africa. And then that is exactly how it has happened. You know, I, we've, yes, we've got a nice network. Our mate is John Smith and he's been a huge advocate for the shoes from the beginning but at the same time you know we've given shoes to random people and then that random person gives it to another person and the next thing an influential tweet or instagram post is created you know do you know that we've had shoes on on matthew mcconaughey the uh, i did not know that yeah so matthew wears our shoes we still don't know how that like works and we think it was to do with somebody in the states that knows us that gave him a pair and that's just 
you know, I don't know how to explain it. We benefit from it, but our game plan or our strategy is to almost not participate in this. So I don't have one paid for influencer. But, oh, and sorry, the other thing that we do all the time is we collaborate. So if we could help, you know, Ford Motor Company, uh, they're wonderful. They, they they created all those incredible jobs in South Africa. They wanted to launch their new car and they got in touch with us and said, you know, would we do shoes? We then throw the kitchen sink at it and we share mm. that on mm. our platform. And I mean, we're not in business with Ford, but they're doing a really cool thing. And then we're doing a cool thing. And then we, we, we do it together. And then we spread the audience size. It's it's just um, it's hyper organic and it's and it's in real time. We, that's how we do it's it. Interesting, Nick. You say you know values are are an intangible, and yet you've just listed two examples of where they are absolutely concrete underpinnings of decision making. Right. Yeah. So if the values are aligned with the influence, it's not an influence anymore. It's just a happy customer yeah. who wants to be an advocate. Um, if yeah. the values are aligned with a a, a partner in collaboration, it makes the agreement. A shoe in, if you'll excuse the pun. Uh, I really struggled not to make more shoe puns in this, in this call. Uh, <laughs> it's <really> difficult. <laughs> Jesus, I struggled. Man. Um, you know, I keep I keep thinking as you're speaking about a, a saying that um, my dear friend Richard Maholland, who I'm sure you know, I quoted him recently online, and he was like, "I don't believe that anymore." But I'm going to quote him anyways because whether you believe it or not, you said it in the first place, and now he has to be accountable for it. But <laughs> um, this idea that that. Often, often, advertising is the price that we pay for a bad product. Now, I know that's an oversimplification of of both things, but it it seems to be in many ways true of your story is that your focal point has been how do we we make an incredible shoe? And if we make an incredible shoe, people are going to want to talk about that. Um, Obviously, people might not want to talk about an insurance policy in the same way. So we can't necessarily compare apples and yeah. uh, pineapples, but I think that it's, it's, it's a really great reminder of the importance of just committing to beautiful craftsmanship and, a, and a, especially in your space, especially yeah. in apparel, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly that. It's, you know, focus is a difficult thing in any business, right? I mean, you know, where do you put your focus? You put your focus in absolute chasing every single cost and efficiency inside the business. So more on the operational side, or do you chase sales or do you chase marketing and PR? And, you know, there's this like balancing act always most often dictated by your um, income statement. Mm, So, and, uh, but what we find is that our groove is to find partners to work with, whether they're influential or, or corporate partners that help us grow our awareness in a way that our team can manageably execute on at the highest level that they can. So we also don't bite off more than what we can chew. And I think that's that's a very big temptation. You know, mm. for, so for mm. example, we're digital, right? Like we're a digital business and we've never outsourced anything to agency and all the rest of it. But I think for a lot of businesses, it, it feels like there's a silver bullet out there. And if you paid for it, it would just be there. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Let's, say, let's say there's something that you want to fix on your income statement. Let's say it's sales. And you go, okay, cool. You know, I'm going to go out there and shop for somebody or agency or whatever the case may be. And I'm going to pay them X and that's going to give me Y return. I think there's, that temptation is, is in every single business. And sometimes yeah. it works and sometimes yeah. it doesn't. You know, it's just yeah. you've got to decide on those things. But in our business, we've decided 
to take on board what we can do as much as possible and grow within that to support it and push it, keep pushing it forward. As opposed to just looking for the big, massive moment. You know, if we, if I had to, for example, get a phone call from Walmart today and said, we want 5 million pairs of shoes, of course, it would be incredibly flattering, but I'm not 100% sure we'd be good at it. And I think we'd mm. probably be out mm. of business in the next year. Hmm. So you've got to think a little bit more. Um, it's not... It's not conservatively, but it's definitely uh, from a, a managed, responsible growth perspective. You've got to think around those things. Yeah, this this idea of technology as a panacea is a sort of common denominator that pops up, especially in conversations around the way that technology is sold by vendors or consultants and often agencies. I mean, I've certainly been guilty of this in the past. And I think what I'm hearing you say is that if, you know, if the business underneath that technology is not sound, is not watertight, all the technology really does is, is kind of amplify that. It amplifies the dysfunction. It makes it kind of worse, right? So as you're saying, like scale is incredible. Growth is amazing, but you want to make sure that that every end of that fulfillment has been scenario planned and yeah. uh, you know stringently tested, and you've considered all of the possible fallouts. Because yeah. ultimately, it doesn't matter how quickly you grow and scale if you do it ineffectively, if you break the promises that you consistently have made to customers before. And I mean, how often have we seen this for South African brands that as they expand, so the experience just kind of degrades and 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 rusts and. But that's just, it's disappointing, but you can also understand how easily it happens, yeah. right? Yeah. So the temptation, I think, to to be more deliberate, more cautious, mm. uh, more considered in your approach, I think is is probably a skill, again, that you acquired from mm. uh, from previous experiences. So what what was the thinking behind Pluckies then? Because Pluckies is, is, is its own thing, but also kind of not its own thing, very much a part of the same mindset and, and ecosystem. Tell people about uh, about how that came about. It came about as an idea at the same time as Falskin. So we actually sat on it for a long time. And, okay. um, but we recognized that there was two pieces of footwear apparel in South Africa that had all this brand equity for hundreds of mm. years that was mm. just never cashed in on. So we, we, actually, we actually took both, right? So it was Falskin and Plucky. And we knew that we were going to do a flip-flop. But – Again, our values, <laughs> we, we needed to make them in South Africa. Now, yeah. I can tell you that that's difficult. <laughs> no, I can it's believe It's very, that. very difficult. And um, it's not difficult to make a really bad flip-flop in South Africa, but it's really <laughs> difficult to make a really good flip-flop in South yeah. Africa. And, yeah. um, and we paid huge school fees, but we, we mm. wanted to do something that was local, of value, that could also tell good stories off because this is our strength. Um, so it took us two or three years to, to get the product right. And uh, there's a clear global benchmark for this stuff in terms of quality mm. and, mm. and price. It's, it's, you know, our friends in Brazil. And yeah, so yeah. We, we, you know, you've got one benchmark and um, we don't intend to be in a position to overtake the 240 million odd uh, flip-flops Javiana sell in a year but the what we want to do is we want to have a flip-flop in South Africa that people could choose because it's been made here and mm. it's good value mm. and it's good quality mm. and it's also the source of quite a good time right like we're always wearing flip-flops during the summer and it's not just for sport or after sport it's 
over a braai and just like a dinner or whatever. So we just feel like there's a big opportunity there. But again, it, it, it falls into the same um, narrative as Falskin, which is it has to be a good product. People have to love it. And then we want to tell fun stories that make people feel good. So for us fans of both brands, what, what can we expect to see over the next couple of months and years, Nick? Uh, what tasty tidbits are you prepared to drop for me? What, <laughs> what can we expect to see from these two incredible brands that I think all of us are very proud of and proud of wearing? Thank you very much. I'll start with Plucky. Plucky is going to make a big splash this summer. We have got an unbelievably important collaboration with the NSRI. Oh, wow. Which, which will be a national – it is a national campaign. And mm-hmm. the campaign is around um, – putting pink boys, floating boys, at all water sources in South Africa, including inlanded rivers, which is a campaign started by the NSRI to help save lives when there are no lifeguards, in places where there are no lifeguards. The, The drowning figures are staggering in South Africa, and these boys over the last couple of years have saved I think it's 78 or 178 people. It's incredible. Hmm. So we've got a campaign going with the NSRI where for every 10 pair of limited edition pink is for boys, plackies we sell, we actually pay for a boy to go up, um, which we think is going to be a big, big campaign and it'll do good. So that makes us feel great. And that's going to be Plucky's big push for the summer. And also just to get it out there. You know, it's the first time we're actually pushing Plucky. So we're, we're looking forward to a cool summer and we hope to see it on as many people as possible. We've also got some key retailers that are going to join, which is which is great. Um, we've never had that. So we're, we're excited for that. So that's Plucky. And then on, on felt skin, I can't say too much because the mechanism for our our last campaign for the year is in fact its mechanism is that it is a secret <laughs> okay fair enough that sounds amazing but, um, we i can tell you now that for a week or two in november i think feltskin may be the most talked about footwear brand possibly on earth for about a week and that is because we've got a incredible global campaign that we've we've partnered with an with an Incredibly interesting business, mm-hmm. and um, and that is that has got a, a, a huge amplification uh, part to the business, and we're excited about that. Um, so that's coming towards the end of the year, and then in Feltskin, look out for new ranges. You know, we, we we're starting yeah. to bring out different types of shoes, and people are responding so well. We've brought out a shoe, a really great collaboration shoe with Kevin Peterson's Wildlife Initiative Surai. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's in fact that's uh, Adriana Lima. She she posted that Sarai shoe, which is wonderful. And mm-hmm. we're going to be pushing that campaign a lot more. And then we've also just brought out a shoe with uh, the Dutoy family. Uh, they called the Eight Feet Brute. The Dutoy family are these wonderful family that that live in here in the Western Cape. And uh, one of the brothers is Peter Steph Dutoy, the rugby player. But uh, they've got a wonderful wonderful thing and check it out on our site eight feet it's brilliant so we've got really interesting collaborations we've got a nice big thing coming with plucky with Falskin towards the end of the year and then internally our big focus is getting a flip-flops onto people and and trying to help the nsri that's our game that's amazing that gets it so encouraging to hear and i, I can't wait to see those things come to life um I, I end off all of these conversations with two questions the first question is if you could go back in time and just utter one sentence to your 18-year-old self. What sentence would you tell that uh, that 18-year-old Nick Dreyer? Um, and I'll give you a moment to think about that while I ask the second question. 
if you could insist that one book be included in the education system, in the primary schooling system or the high school schooling system that, that every child in South Africa should read, uh, what book would it be? So what would you tell your 18-year-old self and what book would you prescribe as learning or reading for young South Africans? Okay, so it's, that is a fabulous set of questions, by the way. <laughs> Thank you so much. And it's such a... Sure, you know, my I probably should have given you more lead time on those. But <laughs> no, that's, you know, I mean, if you see my office here, it's just literally a library of books. So the, the, it's a, you, you're asking me to name my favorite song, which is like... Okay, <laughs> cool. It's a tough question to ask. But um, on, the, on the first thing, I think if I could give myself some advice as an 18 year old, I'm going to, I'm going to give myself some business advice versus some family advice. Cause I'm very blessed to have a very happy, wonderful family with gorgeous children. And I'm, and I'm so deeply grateful for that. So I think I've done okay. Uh, but on the, on, on the business front, I would have, I would have told myself to learn the genuine and real application of understanding how a business makes money. Hmm. Because I think the 23-year-old Nick Dreyer went into the working environment and the 33-year-old Nick Dreyer went into entrepreneurial space, but actually had a fundamental deficit in terms of understanding what it actually takes to make money. Not to, mm, mm. And I'm not talking about make money for myself. I'm talking about growing a business to make yeah. it bigger. And I would have said to myself, spend time for the next 10, 15 years, really trying to understand that. Hmm. And that money or growing businesses doesn't necessarily mean money, that it's yeah. that's, not really the, that's not really the important output. The important output is that you can grow. So that, that's my what advice I'd give myself. Then on the what book should every child read, I'm actually looking at my library now and I'm thinking which one should it, which one should it be. I think in South Africa – I would recommend every single child reads A Long Walk to Freedom mm -hmm. uh, just to position yourself in South Africa correctly uh, from a maybe from the viewpoint of the greatest guy ever to have graced earth maybe you know so I think I think the to read that book would position South Africans mm. in South Africa in a beautiful way so I would I would say that's the book I'd let all children read but older kids, I'd say, read in business, like read a book called Let My People Go Surfing by Yvonne Chouinard, the guy that started Patagonia. Yeah. Because yeah. if you're going to go out there and start a business, at least build a business that's, that's nice and that's yeah. good for the world <laughs> and that treats its people properly and, and respects the fact that we're on earth for a short period of time and that we should be very respectful of our supply chain. Because the more people that read that book that go into business or even go into leadership roles, I promise you the world will be a better place. So I think for younger kids, a long walk to freedom and for, for kids that have got any ideals towards business or leadership or in fact just with the work life, read Let My People Go Surfing by Yvonne Chouinard. 
Yeah, yeah. I was on a fishing trip recently with some mates and donning my Patagonia jacket with my Patagonia pants and like yeah. my little Patagonia yeah. wading boots and whatever. And yeah. my mate was like, are you sponsored by them? And I'm like, basically, they just don't know it yet. I'm yeah. Like, <laughs> and, it, and what's weird is that he tells us not to buy his products, right? I mean, it's indeed, just, indeed, it's so indeed. amazing. <laughs> Rings a bell though. Rings a bell. Yeah. Nick, what a pleasure. You guys have been um, so accommodating in setting this call up. I know how mad the last couple of weeks have been. But just as a South African, as a business person, as an entrepreneur, as a fan, as a customer, somebody who wants to hope for this place and wants to see as much opportunity and possibility in it as possible, uh, you guys are a hell of an inspiration. So thank you for the hard work. Um, it's paying off probably in more ways than even you realize. Um, so thank you again from all of us. That's kind of you to say. And thank you so much for the opportunity to come and talk to your audience. And well done to you for interviewing people like me and hopefully sharing our stories to make people's days a little bit better and uh, hopefully they can contribute positively to South Africa so I, I appreciate the time I really do lekker mate thanks man chat soon cool. you've been listening to the one-eyed man podcast I'm Mike Stopforth an entrepreneur writer and public speaker deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit mikestopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man slash person, is king. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.